A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hekonai ipurangi tenai na Bird of Paradise Productions, Motereo Irirangi o Aotearoa. They looked at him and they judged him straight from the get go because he's got tattoos up his arms. He's dark. He's a little dark Mary boy, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's how I felt. Like, oh, yeah, there's one of those other those statistics. There's Mary boys that don't look after themselves, smoke and drink. I don't know if that would have happened to a Pakia. Even when the facts are familiar, they are still infuriating. Māori are less likely to receive prescriptions for the same illnesses as non-Māori. Our cancers are diagnosed later and have poor prognosis. We get sick younger and die earlier. We know these things because of numerous reports and investigations over the years. We have participated in good faith, collected our mamai and reported it to researchers, government agencies, health professionals. There's a wealth of evidence that's been built up by successive studies, but in concrete terms, very little has been done to address these failings. For years, we just blamed Māori for getting sick. It's only recently that the system has been acknowledged as a perpetrator of inequity. Now, a massive revamp of our health system is in the offing, including the proposal for a new Māori health authority. But the Māori group advising on this has already been sidelined, and there's been a distinct lack of detail about which recommendations will even make it into action. In short, don't hold your breath. So what's it like to be a Māori medical student training to be a doctor inside a system that is prejudiced against your own people? From Bird of Paradise Productions for RNZ, Call Emma Espinaraho, and this is Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student. Over the next seven episodes, we'll take you inside 12 months in my life as a trainee doctor. We'll see what it takes to deliver healthcare to Fano from rural Northland to Gisborne, Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. We'll see how our Māori health leaders are part of a fellowship reforming racist health systems all over the world. And we'll talk to Fano, whose experiences are the real-life stories behind the statistics. And as Aotearoa locked down for COVID, we saw how the government could deal swiftly with one health crisis. Where's that urgency when it comes to Māori? This is episode one, A Better Chance of Dying. As you're beginning to appreciate, if you've looked and uh, started reading your guidebook, it's a fairly complex programme and we don't expect you to understand all of it uh, early on, but we gradually um, upskill you in how to, how to navigate your way through it. I'm about to go into my final year at Auckland University. The further you get on, the more you're expected to be able to demonstrate by actually doing uh, your medical knowledge, particularly in year six, where you're behaving as what we sometimes call a trainee intern, so you're behaving as a junior doctor. It's one thing to learn about Māori life expectancy from a graph, but as soon as you step onto the wards, you're seeing it play out in real time with real people, real whānau. For Māori students, it's even more confronting. These are our whānau. This is the Wallace Fano in Purirua. Kia my name is Colin Wallace. I'm the founder of the Authors Nest. <laughs> Hello, I'm Tina Wallace and I'm 50. Hi, my name is Tiaria 
Well, it's McKinney Cashwell, and um, I. Kia ora, my name is Paddy Cody, and I am 16 years old. Kia ora, my name is Harmony, and I'm 18. Thank you. Kia ora, my name is Tita, and I'm 30 years old. Kia ora, Reha Wallace, and 31. As well as being a mum and a grandmother, Tina has been working as a smoking cessation counsellor at Kokiri Marae in Purirua. She's gathered the whole whānau together this morning to tell us the story of a night six years ago when everything changed. It was in August and I was finishing work on the 28th. That was my last day of work. Well, the Monday of that week, my husband had a stroke. So I got up and I went to the whareupaka and I could hear this noise, this mm, mm, moaning noise. And I was like, Dada, what's wrong? And he wouldn't answer me. And I was like, Dada? And then he... Keep groaning, so I switched on the light and I go, are you all right? And he, he wouldn't open his eyes. And then I went to go and pull the blankets off and his hand was like twisted. And then I was saying, and I said to him, Dada, look at me, smile, smile. And then he went to smile and one side of the face was paralysed. So, and you asked him to do that because I you knew. I asked him because I knew straight away. We have been learning about stroke at work. So um, I got him to smile and only one side. So I woke my girls up, which is Harmony and my other daughter, Putty. I ran to the kitchen, rang an ambulance, told them where we were and all that. And then um, they came. Tina and the girls got Colin to hospital. Colin's thrashing about on the bed and he's trying to sit up. And I says to him, Dada, you need to relax. Just calm down. You've had a stroke. And so he sort of just relaxed back down onto the bed. And then you'd try and move again, you know, let's to get up and I say, Dada, no, relax. You've had a stroke, you just need to relax. The doctors are here, we're okay, you're okay. So you feel like they're doing what they need to yeah, do. Yeah, they need to do because I don't know what to ask or anything. So I'm thinking, yep, they're doing, you know, everything that they need to do to look after my husband. So they ring, they came into the room, one of the doctors came in and he says, oh, you need to uh, ring your family. And I said, oh, why? And he says, oh, your husband... He won't, he's, um, I don't know how long he's got to live. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And then um, he says, well, um, what's happening is Colin's brain is swelling and it's swelling that fast that eventually um, the skull's going to crush his brain. What was it like to hear that? I was dumbfounded. I was like, what? I didn't even, I was like, what are you saying? I couldn't believe what they were saying to me because we were communicating. He was not talking, but I've been married to that man for 30 years. And without even speaking, I can like read him. And, um, you know, like when I'd say to him, Dada, relax, just lie back, he would do all that kind of stuff. So I knew he was, so he was in conscious, there. Yeah. But he just couldn't speak. They thought that he wouldn't make it, and then you went buying it, and then and then what happens? I said, "There's nothing you can do for him. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, and he's physically active. And there's absolutely nothing you can do for my husband." And they said, "Oh, hang on a minute," and they went. They went, and then they came back, and then said, "Oh, um, does your husband smoke and drink?" And I said, "No, he doesn't." I said, he's, so, he's physically fit, he don't smoke and he don't drink and I can't believe there's nothing you can do for him. And they said, well, actually, what we can do is we can cut his bone flap out. And relieve the pressure on yeah, his bone. Yeah, I, I don't know what a bone flap is. And I'm like, well, okay, if that's going to save his life, well, great. And they said, well, 
<clears throat> we can cut his bone flap, and what that can do is it can alleviate the pressure on his brain. It seems like everything changed when you told them that he wasn't a drinker and he wasn't a smoker. It did. Yeah. The whole dynamics changed. Like, I was going from having no hope at all, like 24 hours, that's what they told us, 24 hours, and then to, oh my gosh, there's, a, there's something they can do for him. So, is it something that hadn't been discussed early on, or you think they just assumed? No, they didn't discuss nothing like that with us. Do you feel like they'd I, assumed they assumed he was They did a, assume. Yeah. They looked at him and they judged him straight from the get-go. Because he's got tattoos up his arms, he's dark, he's a little dark merry boy, you know, like... Oh yeah, that's how I felt. Like oh yeah, there's one of those other those statistics. Mm. Those Maori boys, they, you know, don't look after themselves, smoke and drink. Do you think they were racist? I don't know if they were racist, but I just know that there was not that whatever happened that particular moment has to be racism, though. If you're, why would they not do something, or why would they? Do that to, to him. It has to be racism. Yeah. Terrible. I don't know if that would have happened to a Pākehā. Now, as students, we're taught to reflexively interrogate our biases all the time. Something as simple as, would my approach to this patient be different if they were non-Māori? We get feedback from senior doctors that our generation has learned to think with an equity lens, that we get taught about racism in a way that simply didn't happen when they were at medical school. But we are at the bottom of a mountain. The system has a lot of rocks to shift to allow the next generation to enact what we've been taught. Getting it wrong can be a question of life or death. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't said anything? He would have died. He wouldn't be here today. He'd be dead. They only gave us 24 hours. What I remember is 11, 11 to 11, 12 hours, 11 to 11. That's all I could think of. He's got to survive from 11 to 11. Because if he survives that, then he's got 12 more hours. And so we kind of live from 12 hours to 12 hours. You know, after all these years, I'm still crying. Colin's surgery was a success, but for his whanau, the hard part was just beginning. His sister came. He woke up 15 days after. 15 days. So you're waiting for 15 days. I just lived in ICU. I slept outside in the hallway for a couple of weeks because you just didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring, you know so you just yeah, I was just there and I knew that like the shift work like 10 to 7 you had to go you had to go and sit in the foyer and and I used to like have anxiety about it because I didn't know like in that 3 hours whether um, he would be alright or because they used to switch over then, you know, the nurses used to come because they, they used to switch, switch shifts over and then debrief and then you used to have to wait till 10 o'clock to go back in. But yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And then we lived out there for 15 days in that foyer. It sounds like you adapted to the hospital system I rather did. than having it work around you. You just do what you got to do, you know, like... Just felt I just felt happy that I could even be there because I just, you know, no one came to kick you out and tell you couldn't stay there. So you just follow procedures and hoping that no one would come and tell you to go. 
Yeah, because you don't want to offend anyone and I didn't want anyone to kick me out of there. Kick me and my family away. This part of the story is what really broke my heart. Manawahine is a concept I find easy to associate with Tina. But to hear about the lack of dignity that was afforded to her at a really difficult time, that was really hard. The whanau was still unhappy with how Colin was treated in the ED. As they remember it, they made a verbal complaint to someone from Fano services. And what happened next is a little bit unclear. And they said, oh, go and fill out one of those complaint forms inside the waiting room. That's right. So we just filled that out. I filled it out and I put it in the box. And then there was what? a left it. That was it. That's all they told us to do. Did you hear anything? Mm-mm. Nothing. Never to this day. And did I follow up? No, I didn't. Because from that moment, Colin was going into rehab, so I lived at Kenapuru Hospital as well. I took on his full-time cares at the hospital. As you can imagine, we were super curious about this box Tina said she put the complaint in. Seems like a really odd way of making a complaint in a hospital. When we followed up, we got the following statement. Kaplan Coast DHB does not have a system through which complaints can be dropped into boxes on our campuses and we are not aware of any such complaints box having been in place in 2014. Tina says she was pretty distracted at that time what with everything that was going on with Colin so she wasn't 100% sure how she made the complaint. So she called her daughter Ray over to tell the story to me and our producer Noel. I filled that form out in the foyer bit. Yes, the one that was sitting on the bench. Yeah. Yeah. And then put it in the box. That's right. <laughs> and then nothing, nothing came back from that. No. Nah, that was kind of it. Putting the complaint into a box, how did that make you yeah. feel? Yeah, well, the box, it's like... Did it get picked up? Did it, yeah, did it get picked <coughs> up? Is or? it still there? <laughs> the hospital told us they had no record of Tina's complaint. And if the whanau would like to make a new complaint, they'll happily look at it. But what happened to the first one? The Wallaces say they filled out a form and put it in a box. But the hospital says they weren't using boxes for complaints in 2014. It's a mystery. While there's confusion over what may or may not have happened with the complaint, what does seem fair to say is that for this whānau, the process of making a complaint was not straightforward or clear. And as Ray explains, Tina was too focused on Colin at the time to have the energy to follow it up. I think at the time mum was really stressed out. She was she she just didn't even leave dad's side. She was sleeping outside in the foyer. So I think at that time she was too thing to comprehend really what was going on because she was sitting by dad's side. She she wasn't eating, she wasn't drinking, she wasn't sleeping. So we, we would take turns, Misty and I, just to help out. You have to be quite strong and I think, you know, strong to, to move forward with, with a complaint like this. Health literacy is an outdated idea that makes me grind my teeth. It puts the onus on individuals to learn more in order to navigate a system that's often horrendously complex, punishing people who don't understand it and rewarding those who do. But for the sake of understanding this situation, I'd say that this whānau are highly health literate. So Colin got the help he needed before it was too late. But it shouldn't have come to this. And unfortunately, their battle was only just beginning. It's six years now since Colin had his stroke and the family have done an amazing job without any real support for a long time after he left hospital. Our health system allocates funding based on the needs of a Pākehā majority. Colin wasn't supposed to have had a stroke in his 50s. The Stroke Foundation tells us that most strokes in New Zealand occur in over 65s. Most strokes among Pākehā, that is. 
We didn't know we could get help. So, for so two how did years, you find out? I, I got burnt out and I went to the doctors. And I said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I um, get my husband up at seven every morning. I shower him. And I said, I, and i got to come home throughout the day because all my kids work. But it you was, guys muddled along without any support. And then what did your GP say? Oh, I'll send a letter to Capital Coast DHB and well, they'll send an assessor out. So the assessor came to the house. Colin was here on his own because I was at work and I was on my way back, but she came early. And she goes, oh, my gosh, he needs five hours a day. He cares. So why didn't Full-time that happen cares. when you left the hospital? Didn't even know that you could get all that. Yeah, nothing. nothing. They told us, oh, the only help you can get is um, uh, for one year after the stroke is um, rehabilitation for him. So that's, yeah, that's what we had. And so I had to train him to, to teach him how to go taller and just to look after himself. Dr Curtis Walker is chair of the Medical Council, the first Māori doctor to hold that position. I asked him about what happened to the Wallaces. Oh, ko tume tuatahi um, mihi aroha ki, ki te rā whānau uh, e pāna, um, e pāna tēnā kōrero. Look, those kind of stories, um, well, it's not a story, is it? It's the truth for that whānau, and it happened, and it happens. So those uh, sorts of things uh, have gone on, do go on, and will continue to go on in a disproportionate way for Māori for as long as, as we don't make the, the world and system a better place. So, at least one thing that uh, we're asking doctors to do with my medical council portai on um, and health organisations, um, as far as we can influence them, um, is to deliver culturally safe care. Now, that starts with us as doctors and us as hospitals and us as systems saying, where are our biases? Where is our racism? What are the sorts of things that are determining our decision-making here? How are we genuinely going to understand that whānau's experience and learn from it? Um, because that care is not safe. We are not delivering safe care. They are not receiving safe care. Um, and that results in those, you know, all sorts of unequal outcomes. Unequal outcomes. That's jargon for having a better chance of dying if you're Māori. In theory, everyone gets the same care. In practice, if there are critical moments when decisions are made if they involve triage around resources or around how much effort goes into any one case. These are marginal, almost subconscious decisions made by real people in stressful situations. The guts of it is, if you take your husband into ED in the middle of the night, he has a better chance of coming out alive if you can connect with the doctors and nurses who'll be looking after him. That might mean language, that might mean culture, it might just be about your tattoos or your face. Becoming a doctor means reconciling myself with being part of a system that discriminates against my own people. One of the reasons I wanted to make this series is to find out how do other Māori in the system deal with this? Do they get hōha, make a noise, potentially exhaust themselves, fighting all the time? Or keep faith, look to the changes said to be coming and work with what we've got in the meantime? It's not a new choice in the context of our colonial history. Going back to kind of 1840s, signing of the Tetiriti, there were... Māori inside the tent trying to strike a deal to get the best options possible and to, you know, look for that way forward. Equally, there were Māori outside the tent 
who were cutting down flagpoles and agitating and saying, actually, that's not good enough. And and those two uh, parallel uh, streams of thought, uh, ways of action kind of intertwine and um, in many ways support each other. And sometimes they intertwine in the same doctor. I'm, I'm excluded from Otago University. I'm named in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Named in the Senate means you can never go back. Eh? There's a flagpole involved, I'm just saying. These days, Dr Rawiri Jensen is the highly respected clinical director for the National Hoora Coalition and former head of the Māori Doctors Association, Te Ora. As a GP in South Auckland, he's working within the system to effect change. But back in his Otago days, his activism was more hands-on. And it was a bloody big flagpole, you know. And our fantasy was a skinny little pole, but the bloody thing was about, uh, you know, more than 12 inches square at its base. And thunk, thunk, and it's echoing off all the buildings. And the security guard comes walking towards us and he yells, what are you doing? Well, it's obvious what we're doing, man. It's, it's Waitangi Day, what do you think we're doing? And so we chopped it, it took about, oh, it must have taken 14 minutes, chop it all right through and it tumbled down. And then our getaway car kind of stalled and we were running after it and then we had to push it. Oh my <laughs> so, God, that's so Dunedin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, it was hilarious. Dr Jansen spent a decade as a full-time activist and protester. Um, nuclear friend of Pena Pacific, Māori land, Māori language, um, Springbok tour, all that sort of stuff. Before finding his way back to medicine. By that stage we had four kids and a mortgage and so... Yeah, I was at med school all day and dropped them off at school, make their lunches and pick them up and study all night. And I started running my first business doing cultural competency training courses when I was a med student. What, what year? What year were you in when you started doing that? Second year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I loved it. It was just, <laughs> I felt found. He's now a GP in a kaupapa Māori practice in South Auckland, and he knows exactly how it feels, trying to stay well and thrive in a health system that's not set up for us. Non-Māori are going to uh, recognise everything about that system, it's built for them. They're going to be comfortable straight away. You don't, you don't have to worry about whether there's oxygen in the room because you can breathe. Great. But if there's no oxygen in the room, you're going to get uncomfortable. And so I think of culture being something like that for when you've got cultural concordance, it's completely natural, completely comfortable. But when you go somewhere where those things don't exist... Mm. There's not enough oxygen in the room to breathe. It's uncomfortable. The thing about being a doctor is that you're the one who people are grateful to see when someone's not breathing, when there isn't any air. I asked the Wallace Farno how much of a difference it would have made if they'd had a Māori doctor that night in the ED. Oh, huge difference, huge. I can just feel it already. I can, all that, what I felt that day would have been lifted hugely because the, the, the understanding in Māori... Māori know that Māori are shy. They don't ask for anything. They don't want to push boundaries. And so coming from a Māori perspective, you would know, oh, that family. You know, if they're not talking or they're not saying anything, you would get them and bring them together and say, look, this is what's happening. You know, you wouldn't just leave them on their own defending for themselves or like trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. A doctor would come and say, look, how do my whānau? Come, we need to have a kōrero. And so you would just go, and then they would say to you, this is what's happening to your loved one. And explain it to you so that everyone knew. Not in bits and pieces or two, just one person. They would bring the family together and say, look, this is what's happening for your your papa. 
This Fano, who only just met me, have such incredible belief in the doctor that I'm going to be. Like, flattering, obviously, but I also feel that it's less about me as an individual and more about an instinctive recognition of the way that these big systems work. Cultural safety isn't just paying lip service to the idea of diversity. It's recognising that this is how we, as doctors, make judgments. Judgments that can result in life or death. Back in the city, we parked up on Cuba Street and Noelle and I talked about it. When Tina said how great it would have been if you had been the doctor who was on duty that night, if you'd been there, how did that make you feel? It, I mean, it's the whole reason I'm here. So that was that was validating in that sense. And also, you know, you do get a bit jaded sometimes, especially working at that kind of political commentary level where we're talking about, you know, various inquiries and, and inequity and looking at the stats and getting bogged down by all of that stuff. And then just to meet a family that say, you know, say to you, just coming into the ED and seeing you and your face and knowing that you're Māori would make a difference. Did it make you want to be a doctor in the system? It made me realise that you can do something within this system. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of us that are asking for things to change at a system level, but it's kind of, you know, it's matching those two things up. So, I mean, I'm a bit of a pragmatist, so I'm like, well, the system's not going to dramatically change in the next five to ten years. Um, So what can we do within this system now? And so it is possible to have a positive effect even in the system as it stands and then do that other work in tandem with that. Which, I guess, is how you get a former flagpole chopper using te tiriti to redress inequity born of our colonial history. 2499, the Māori medical practitioners, Te Ohurato Aotearoa, were claimants in the Waitangi Tribunal Kaupapa inquiry into health services and outcomes. So the Māori medical practitioners are really interested in being able to look at the wider determinants of health as well as necessarily in Aotearoa, we must look at history of colonisation. We must look at colonisation as it is running now. We must look at racism. And if we're to change the outcomes for Māori, then we must undo some of those things. We must address many of those things. How many? Probably most of them. The interventions that we seek will be a treaty-compliant health system, yes. They will be a health system in which we see ourselves as part of that, delivering health services to our people. But we will also address that history. We need to tell that truth and we need to do something about it now. We say, if we look forward to the year 2040, we're going to celebrate 200 years since the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. We're going to celebrate or we're going to protest? Because if we don't get this job done, we're going to be protesting. Hell yeah. We're available for that. But on the other hand, if we got busy and really made a difference and we celebrate, we would be able to say we've got equity in all of these places and it would be about education, it would be about income, it would be about employment, it would be about home ownership. Yeah, It would be all of those things. So we've got a lot of work to do. And the health system's got part of that to do, but the whole of society has got work to do. Let's get busy. This is the challenge for us as Māori in medicine. We're thinking ahead and we're dreaming, advocating for something better, while having to do our best in the system as it is. You're putting on the band-aid while designing the new world and, all the while, fighting those who don't agree with you. It's a lot, but Tina's story is an example of why we do it. This happens on the wards with every Māori patient we see, 
every patient who sees us. You make a difference for one person and it gives you the motivation to keep going towards the bigger goal of a truly equitable health system. And what's changed for you guys since? What, how's family life different now? It's just lucky mum was there. She, she just like, she, I don't know, she just wheeled him back and she just like stuck by his side. Like she never left him and then she just like nurtured him from the side, even if it was just singing, holding his hand, she'd talk to him. She, would, she was just really nurturing towards dad. And then, yeah. But today, yeah, he's a headache. Today, <laughs> he was a headache before, and he's a headache now. <laughs> so nothing's That's changed. Why I refuse to die. Someone to talk about. You don't really know that it's like that big, but actually, like Ray said, you don't say something now. It's going to affect somebody else's family. And how many families have been affected like this and haven't had the support? This is the heart of it, eh? When whānau are discharged from our hospitals, they go home. If they're lucky to have a family like the Wallaces, they figure it out and get better together. It'd be nice if we had a health system which made that easy for them. Getting Better is an original series from Bird of Paradise Productions for RNZ. The show is hosted by me, Emma Espiner, and written by me and Noel McCarthy. Noel McCarthy was the senior producer, John Daniel was the script editor, and Gabriel Baker was our consulting producer. Sound design and mixing by Andre Upston, music by Pitch Black with thanks to Paddy Free and Michael Hodgson. Our main title graphics and episode illustrations are by Gabriel Baker. Kay Almers is RNZ's Senior Commissioner and Tim Burnell is the Commissioning Coordinator. Thanks also for the support from RNZ Kurahotu Māori, Shannon Honui-Thompson. This series was made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.